0: I guess it was about seven years ago when my family and I started this journey uh, towards uh, my ordination in in the priesthood. And when I started this journey, I was a couple of blocks south of you right now, down at St. Luke's Episcopal Church. And I never would have dreamed that I would have wound up here. Uh, I told my friend Tim Baxter that I uh, was starting work here, and he goes to St. Luke's and. His reply was, oh, good, now you're working for the competition. But St. Luke's is not competition for all saints because we all work for the same Jesus. There's one version of that Jesus that I love uh, dearly. Uh, It's in a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And and, and I I really love this version of Jesus because it, it reminds me of a couple of things. It reminds me, first of all, of, of a dear friend and mentor, Charlie Johnson, who's a, a Baptist preacher in Texas. And um, I heard this this poem for the first time in a sermon that he uh, delivered one Wednesday evening. And it also uh, reminds me of uh, some other things that have brought me back to Jesus during my lifetime. It says, uh, sometime during eternity... Some guys show up, and one of them who shows up real late is a kind of carpenter from some square type place like Galilee. And he starts wailing and claiming he is hip to who made heaven and earth, and that the cat who really laid it on us is his dad. Lawrence Ferlinghetti's Jesus was pretty shocking for his day. I imagine some of the religious types who read this poem and that was in the book, uh, one of my favorite books, A Coney Island of the Mind. Were shocked that Lawrence Ferlinghetti dare uh, to present Jesus in the language of beat poetry. And this poem also makes me smile because it, it led me back to Jesus during a, a time in my life, what one friend of mine calls the dark ages of the soul. Yes, that period between the ages of 17 and 20 when you go off to college and you take your first religion class and you're uh, confronted with the inevitable agnosticism that always strikes you at that age. And this jazz Jesus, as a boy of 17 uh, who loved bebop jazz, this jazz Jesus brought me back from that agnosticism. And there's another image of Jesus that, that helped form me when I was very young and continued to help form me and continues to help form me as, a, as I grow older. It's in the first Bible that I ever owned, uh, a children's living Bible. Some of you here may have gotten a copy of that when you were little. My parents bought me this Bible when I was seven years old. And if you've never seen one before, it's, it's full of these gorgeous illustrations of Jesus hanging out with little children. In one of my favorite pictures, Jesus was sitting on a stump or a rock or something, and little children were gathered around him, and one of them was sitting in his lap. And, of course, these were little children dressed in beautifully uh, clean, pastel-colored tunics and headscarves. Jesus, his beard, freshly shaven, looking remarkably Anglo-Saxon. And during the 30- to 45-minute sermons that I heard every week at First Baptist Church, after I ran out of offering envelopes to mutilate, and after my mom went through her supply of clove-chewing gum in her purse, I would sit and browse through this living Bible and look at these pictures of Jesus. You see, this children's living Bible, Jesus, was friendly. This Jesus was kind. This Jesus had a, had a wonderful smile and a wonderful laugh, I imagine. He was an adult that any kid would have wanted for a friend or a mentor. Picture after picture showing him welcoming the little children in his midst. Now these are two of my favorite versions and depictions of Jesus, and I'm sure that all of you have your own favorites that you might have seen in a foreign country in an art museum, or you might have heard in an in, a, in an opera, or you might have uh, heard in in a, in a mass, or you might have read about in a book or seen in a movie. And I'm sure that if I did the little exercise I do when I'm teaching and I ask you to turn to the person to the left of you and and talk for three minutes about your favorite version of Jesus, you would have plenty to talk about. And don't worry, I'm not going to make you do it right now. We all have our versions of Jesus that are close to us personally, that draw us closer to him, that give us inroads to learning more about him, that help form us as Christians and continue to help form us as Christians However, sometimes these pictures of Jesus that we form in our imaginations, that are inspired in our minds by art, sometimes can be a little dangerous for us, I think, because they can help us to create a Jesus in our mind who is a little too comfortable, a Jesus who is a little too agreeable, a Jesus who is a little close to our culture in our present day. Jesus and his disciples remind us today that constructing our own personal Jesus can be a problem for the kingdom of God. As we read in today's gospel, even the disciples have constructed for themselves a Jesus who might be a little too friendly to their ambition. A Christ who to them might be in charge of a movement, a radical perhaps An inspirational leader who carries them forth into their future uh, is one of the greatest. So they ponder today how they can be the greatest. And the funny thing about this passage is, is that in spite of the fact that Jesus alerts them to where they are headed, you know, they are headed to Jerusalem where he tells them today in explicit terms that he is going to face death. And that they are all going to probably meet with some kind of unpleasant end, that he in fact will be killed when they wind up in Jerusalem. In spite of all this, they're arguing about who is going to be the greatest disciple of this Christ. And you know, who can blame them in this particular moment? Because Jesus, in in recent days, has been a remarkable healer, he's been a preacher, he's been a teacher. He's been a polemicist. He's, he's told off the religious authorities of the day. He's been a prophet and a miracle worker. He ra- he's raised people from the dead. He's given sight to the blind and given hearing to the deaf. He's had nature at his command. And he's been a wise and merciful judge. So it's no wonder that their ambition was inspired because he was showing a lot of greatness Their confusion is fairly understandable because each of them are now aspiring to share in this glory, to share in some of these traits that he has, to share in some of this power, maybe even to share in some of this divinity that shows forth from Jesus. And I love the moment when he catches them arguing. They get really quiet all of a sudden. And Jesus, ever the teacher, does something entirely shocking. In their day, see, he doesn't shush them with a rebuke or call down storm clouds to show them who, in fact, is the greatest to to shut them up. No, no. I, I picture I picture this too. He sighs, and I think he sits down. It says, and he calls over a child, which I like to think that it was a little girl. In, in the text, it says it's a little boy, but I like to think perhaps it was a little girl. And calling over that child was a very shocking act for his day, because see, children uh, in in Christ's day were lower than slaves. They they were lower than farm animals. Really, they were nothing. They were nobody. Really, they were they were merely property. And you you waited for them to mature enough so they could be of some use. They could uh, they could handle a plow, or they could uh, tend to a crop, or they could take care of farm animals or fetch a bride price and do something for you. So he takes this child and he places this child among the disciples and he declares to them that to welcome this child, this, this nobody, to welcome this person who, who, who is not thought of as quite human is not only to welcome him, but to welcome God herself. Shocking. Scandalous. No, Jesus tells them, uh, I'm not the sum total of all my miracles. I am not, in fact, the ringleader of a movement. I am not, in fact, a radical. I am found here in this nobody. My greatness is found in how and where we place these nobodies in our lives. Of course, this gospel calls us to do what we can and do what we must for the the poor and the oppressed and the imprisoned, the nobodies who surround us and whose needs are infinite. And many times we in the church do a pretty good job at it, and sometimes I think that we fail miserably. However, I, I think there's a little bit more to this gospel because I think that we are called as individuals, and as the church, to stop constructing our own personal Jesuses that are are too comfortable to us and too agreeable. We are called to challenge these comfortable images of Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We are called to begin doing the risky business of looking outwardly for Jesus around us and among us. The gospel calls us to pursue, to embrace, to seek out the nobodies among us. To seek out the people who are absolutely no use to us. To find out who they are in our lives and then to place them in our midst. To place them in our midst through relationship and kindness and compassion. When we do this, we are no longer being formed by neatly constructed, personal, meek, and mild versions of Jesus, but by a Jesus amongst the crowds of nobodies, nobodies who are awaiting our embrace, nobodies who are awaiting our welcome. When we do welcome the nobodies, Jesus tells us today, we welcome God to our midst, And then, perhaps, we can be the greatest. Amen.